just this last summer, Dean and I had a, the opportunity to move to a wonderful acreage. And basically, we live in a forest. And when we moved in, the whole place was alive. I mean, there were birds in the morning. You could hardly have a conversation. There's so many birds there, eagles circling overhead, coopers, hawks, all kinds of bees buzzing around, and owls, and just all kinds of crazy stuff. Everything was in full bloom, full blossom. Uh, we were eating blackberries every day. I mean, it was just an alive place to live. Fast forward to this winter, and it's a very different place. It was quiet. There was, I don't know where all the bugs go, but they go somewhere. You know, the birds had all migrated. Uh, all the leaves were off the trees. It was just really, really a very different place. It felt very dead. But as the spring came, and we last particularly a couple of weeks, we've seen things begin to blossom and bloom out. We know what's coming. Yeah. We know that that same summer experience is coming back to our property. We know that because it, the summer, the springtime, gives away what's coming in the summer. And remember a couple days ago we had that hot day. You know that smell in the forest? That's the first time I've smelled that smell. I know what's coming. That sense of anticipation for what the spring is bringing. 2,000 years ago, Jesus told this very same story to his followers. It was in the last couple of days of his life, in that period between Palm Sunday and his crucifixion. And he was talking to them about the issue of anticipation. And he was letting them know some things that are going to come, things that kind of blew their mind. Um, Today we're going to look at Luke chapter 21. As we mentioned, we're finishing up a series of Luke this week, next week. It's been wonderful these last three months just to be reading together the book of Luke. But I invite you to turn over to Luke chapter 21. If you want to get into this a little bit more sometime later on this week in your own private time, there's a big crossover in Matthew 24 and also in Mark 13 on this chapter. So if this is something that kind of tweaks your thinking, take a little time and look at those two chapters. Let's pray before we start. Lord, thank you for this amazing chapter, and thank you for these words that you spoke so long ago, and yet that still have such relevance for today and what's to come. God, I just pray you open up our hearts. I just pray you encourage us where we need to be encouraged, challenge us in the places that we need to be challenged this morning. Lord, we trust you. We open up our hearts to you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Well, Luke chapter 21, Jesus is speaking, and he's what I would call in full-on prophetic mode. This is a chapter all about prophecy. Um, Jesus displayed all of the spiritual gifts. It's very interesting to me if you look at the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, Romans 12, and other places in the Scripture. It, I see evidence in Jesus' life of every one of those spiritual gifts in operation because he was so fully dependent on the Lord and walked in such sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. He, he's kind of unique because he displayed all of those gifts in his life, and he's definitely utilizing a prophetic gift in the words he's speaking in 21. But more than that, Jesus was unique in the sense that he fulfilled uh, three offices that were set up in the Old Testament in hundreds of years before that God set up when he set up the economy of Israel, the office of the prophet, of the priest, and of the king. Very few people carried more than one of those roles. As a matter of fact, the norm was that they were three separate people throughout the life of Israel. But Jesus is unique because he was a complete fulfillment of all three of those roles in one person, in the God-man. 
So he's speaking not only, I think, through spiritual gifts when he talks about these prophetic words, but he's also speaking as the prophet, the Old Testament prophet that has come to redeem Israel. So pretty significant kind of things that he says. And one of the things about the, 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 the prophetic or the true prophetic, the God-given, spirit-enabled prophetic, it often foresees the future, but it's not super specific about timing. Have you ever noticed that prophetic word sometimes that come in the life of our church or in your own life? They speak of things in the future, but it's hard to nail down just exactly kind of when it's all going to fit. You've heard me use this illustration before, but it's like looking out across the Strait of Georgia to the Sunshine Coast, all those beautiful mountains that are behind as you look across the Strait of Georgia where we live, especially in a hot summer night and those purples come in around sunset, you can see those different peaks and you can tell that there's kind of one behind the other and you have a sense of a little bit of the ordering of where those peaks are, but you have no idea of the distance between them because there's just no depth perception from that. But you know they're there and you know that there's things farther and things nearer, but you'd have no idea between where they are in terms of terms of each other. The prophetic is like that. The true, true prophetic reveals things from God, but it's hard for us to know just exactly sometimes what the timing of those things are. And that's exactly what Jesus is speaking of. We can see the peaks, but we don't know the distance. So we're going to go through a chapter fast, uh, fast this morning and talk about some of those peaks. And you'll see that there'll be different kinds of experiences near, mid, far in the future that Jesus is speaking. But that's the, the background of this chapter. So let's start at verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings... By the way, Nate talked about the temple last week, most amazing structure in the beginning of Jesus' life, Herod's temple. It had been beautified and expanded in Herod in the decades prior to Jesus' birth. A lot of people say it was right up there with like the seven wonders of the world, you know, in terms of its elegance, its beauty, its stature, you know, it was positioned, like Nathan said, you could see it as you were coming in. I mean, everybody in Jerusalem would just be stunned at the amazing glory and, and the foundations and all that stuff. We still have some of it left. The Wailing Wall is a piece of really the outer courtyard, way, way, way out of Herod's temple. So it's, it was an amazing structure, an imposing structure. And it was, it was like ground zero rock solid foundation for the Jews. I mean, there was just nothing else to say about the foundation but the centrality of the temple. So they were saying to Jesus, hey, look, at, look we can see the temple from where we are. How cool is this, right? Jesus says, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will be not one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And their brains go into tilt mode. <laughs> Could you say that again? And he asked them, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the signs when these things are about to take place? He said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So in the midst of all of the splendor of the temple and all of them kind of beating their chest, like, look how cool it is to be Jewish. And in, in this temple in Jerusalem, Jesus says it's all going to be gone. It's literally going to be destroyed. And of course, their brains are in tilt. Well, what do you mean? This is the center of our faith. This is the center of our nation. This has stood for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is the, dwell, the very dwelling place of God. What do you mean? And right away, of course, they have two questions. I'd have those same questions too. The first one is when. And when God reveals things prophetically, that's often our first response. Wow! When? <laughs> Unfortunately, God doesn't often answer the when question. I don't know why he does that. I guess maybe it builds our faith or... 
gives space for things that are just too, too big for our little teeny brains. He doesn't often do the, the when question, and Jesus doesn't answer the when question. The second thing, they say, well, are there some signs? Can you give us some clues? If you're not going to tell us when this is going to happen, what are the signs that are going to precede this event? So Jesus highlights one, and he says there'll be, there'll be these false prophets or these false messiahs that'll come and they'll say, I'm he, look over here, I'm the one, I'm the deliverer. Remember Nathan and Paul before last week talked about how much the Jews hated the Romans and they were just waiting to get this horrible government off their back, foreign government occupiers off their back. And, and there'll be people coming, say, I'm the one, look at me, come after me, you know, give your money, right? Jesus says, that's one of the signs, but it's not gonna come right away. It's interesting that this prophetic word that Jesus sp spoke was literally fulfilled in A.D. 70. If you know your history, uh, the Romans came in and completely destroyed the temple. As a matter of fact, they burned it, and because there was so much gold in the temple, it had seeped down between the rocks, and the soldiers completely tore every stone off every stone to get that little bit of gold that was here and there. It was actually pushed into a valley and completely decimated. That was just a, you know, 30 years after Jesus was speaking, 20, 30 years. So there was a literal fulfillment of this prophetic word that Jesus gives. So you see the validity already of when Jesus is speaking prophetically, he's speaking the very words of God. Uh, and that's what took place in AD 70. Let's look on in 1019, because he, he had way, way more to go, starting in verse 10. He said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. There'll be tears and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate before how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you will be put to death. You'll be hated for all my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So now Jesus is talking about this brutal persecution that's beginning to break out. And, and we see this come into fruition at the end of the first century. There was a horrible persecution that Nero unleashed. The Christians were basically the scapegoats, and they just did horrible things uh, to the Christians toward the end of the first century. So again, Jesus is speaking prophetically. There's this near-term response just in the 10 or 20 or 30 years after Jesus is speaking where this persecution breaks out. But Jesus speaks about coming before rulers and speaking. Think about the book of Acts and think about Paul, you know, consistently going through all the rulers from the local guy to the regional guy to the magistrate. And eventually Paul tells his testimony in front of Caesar in Rome. That's the very thing that Jesus said was going to happen. But it wasn't just Paul. It was a lot of other Christians too. Every time the Christians got drugged in front of some magistrate or something to get whipped or to thrown in prison or killed, they spoke about Jesus. They testified to this pagan government about who the reality of Jesus was. So these literal things were taking place just very soon after Jesus said these things. The thing about this prophecy is there are many people feel there's probably more to this piece than just what took place at the end of the first century. There's more probably to come. As a matter of fact, if you think about church history in the last 2,000 years, there are probably times that you could identify that the church has actually gone through this kind of experience already. 
But think about at the end of World War II when the communists took over China and the, the cultural revolution, the horrible things that took place to the, for the Christians that were in China at that time. I'm sure there were Christians that were reading this that said, look, here it is right here, brother betrays brother, and you know all the things they had to go through, many of those Christians. So there's probably lots of times already in church history where you could say people were going through these kinds of pressures and saying, ah, here it is. This is, this is it, this is it. And certainly those were fulfillments in terms of you know, things that Jesus was speaking prophetically, but very likely he's still talking about something way more into the future that's still yet to come, even for our generation, generations to come. It's interesting in this passage, Jesus says, they will hate you because of my name. Paul's preached two weeks ago. He mentioned this very powerfully. Or it might have been Nathan last week. Maybe it was Nathan. But one of the guys in the last couple weeks talked about that. Think about all the things you can say at a cocktail party, you know, about, you know, cosmic spirits or, you know, Jonathan Livingston Seagull or, you know, trees that have spirits. It's all good, Right? You can say anything you want. People go, oh, mm, that's just so great for you. But say Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and he died for our sins. Man, the party's over. <laughs> you know, There's one name that people just cannot tolerate. It's Jesus Christ. And there's a reason for that. Why is Jesus Christ the only swear word of all the religious? No one says, oh, Buddha. You know? there's nobody... Why is that? Because that word is so powerful. And Paul says it's the power of that word, the power of my name is why you're going to get persecuted. That's why we carry the name of Jesus, Christians, Christ ones, little Christs. Even in our name, what we call ourselves, and other people call us Christians, that's, that's built into that. So Paul, Jesus says, be ready. There's going to be a cost for you being associated with me, particularly in this end time. Either way, near, far, still to come, he says that the key is going to be endurance here. Jesus says, during this time, you need to endure and see let God bring you through all of the difficulties that are coming. And it's pretty hectic when you read these things that are saying, but I think it's probably good evidence to say, yes, that definitely took place at the end of the first century and maybe other times since then, but there's probably a time coming when we'll see this even in greater times in the future. Let's look at verse 20. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that the desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city not depart. Let those who are out in the country not enter it, for those days of, are days of vengeance to fulfill all that was written. Alas, for women who are pregnant or those who are nursing infants in those days. There'll be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Don't forget, Jesus had just come through Palm Sunday. The little kids, Hosanna in the highest. And the, and the disciples are probably like, oh yeah, this is it. I can feel it. We are going to kick the Romans out. And so here we're here. And now Jesus is talking about this kind of stuff. It's like, wait a minute. This is not what I signed up for. But Jesus is getting his disciples ready when we see this thing that's coming. Um, this prophecy probably saved actually many Christians' lives at the end of the first century. And from about 80, 60 on, there was a great persecution that arose. And when Jesus said, don't come back to the city, flee, get out of the city, a lot, that's exactly what the Christians did. When the Romans came down on the Christians as AD 70 approached, they fled all over the world. They spread out and, and the gospel was taken to all the whole Mediterranean region because the Christians fled. I think it's partly because Jesus said, do that. There were some religious zealots who stayed and fought for Jerusalem. 
You know Masada, the story of Masada and the Jewish people that were way up on the thing, you know, and died in Masada? Jesus says, look, don't do that. Don't stand in, because this coming, this wreckage is coming. And we saw that in the city of Jerusalem. But there, again, is probably a farther um, fulfillment of this still to come in time. So this had saved many, many lives, I think, because the Christians realized, look, this is not the time to stand and fight. This is the time to run and to go to other places. And as weird as that sounds, God uses that in the book of Acts to spread his, his word against uh, kind of the whole known world in a, in a short period of time. Um, there's probably still going to be a future battle, uh, end times battle centered around Jerusalem. Again, some of these things I can't be dogmatic about, but it looks very clear that not only was there an event at the end of the first century, and there have been other events through time. Jerusalem is an interesting place. It's interesting real estate. It's God's place. And there are conflicts, spiritual conflicts in the heavenly realms taking place probably around that piece of real estate that we've seen much more, and there's probably more to come. So be aware that like the mountains, you look in the distance, this is, you know, some things have been fulfilled, there may be some things still to come, but there's things probably in the distance that have to do with this issue of Jerusalem and armies coming against it. This in verse 25. He said, there'll be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, the earth distress, and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear, with foreboding of, What's coming in the world? This is a real upper message this morning, isn't it? Yeah. I thought you'd like it. For the powers of heavens will be shaken. And then they'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. This, this section, he's talking all about his second coming. And Paul preached a great message two weeks ago that talks about that second coming. Make sure to listen if you didn't get a chance because it connects right up into what Jesus is saying. He's talking about his second coming. And when Jesus comes the second time, the one that's still to come, there's not going to be any mistaken identity about him. I mean, when he came the first time, he came as a carpenter's son in a manger and it was like, oh, yeah, that's real thrilling. There was so much misunderstanding about who Jesus, because they expected the, you know, the warrior guy to come, you know? He didn't even do anything until he was 30, and then he only lasted three years, come on, and died. I mean, yeah, sure, he rose again, okay, but uh, you know what I'm saying? From the world's perspective, you know, it wasn't that big a deal. It wasn't that big a thing. They were expecting the white horse. Last week, Nathan talked about he comes in a donkey. We had donkeys. They are the most humble. Stop. No. Go. No. Here's the, the warrior king riding on the donkey and peace coming in to, to, to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. That's why they misunderstood Jesus the first time he came. But there's not going to be any misunderstanding of Jesus the next time he comes. When he comes, there's going to be no mistaken identity. This is not, to, um, to, is not going to be something when Jesus comes a second time where you have to go, oh, did you, did you see that video on YouTube? Oh, can I share that with you? Oh, 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 no, it's not going to be a CNN thing. The whole world is going to know when Jesus comes back. There's not going to be any questions. If somebody says to you, hey, come over here, the Messiah's come back, i got a secret. That's it's, it's not the one, because everybody's going to know when Jesus returns. He's going to return in the heavens on a white horse with armies and this sword sticking out of his mouth and all kinds of stuff on his thigh. You know that whole thing in the book of Revelation. Okay? So there's not going to be any questions in his second coming, but that's what he's talking about in this situation. Again, he's speaking prophetically for, and it's hard because they're trying to connect up, you know, oh, the Jerusalem at AD 70, the end of the first year, oh, you know, where does all this fit in? But it's coming, we just don't know the dates. Matter of fact, Jesus says, I don't even know that date. That's very interesting. 
He said, so don't ask me when I'm coming back. Only the Father knows that. But I am coming back. And it's interesting in this passage, he says this is not a time to be feared or dreaded for Christians. I don't know, maybe we've watched too many left behind videos, you know, or youth junior high camps, those ridiculous VHS movies we had to watch or whatever. We're too scared of this thing, right? It's like, oh, it's a total bummer. And, you know, all the people who love to have pain go to prophetic, you know, seminars. Oh, it's going to be horrible. Oh, they can't. Uh. You know, yeah, it is going to be horrible. The end times are going to be horrible preceding Jesus' second coming. Horrible for those who have made a conscious decision to reject Jesus Christ. And hear me, that's full stop. I mean, that's very sobering and it weighs on my heart to think about that. But for us that know Jesus as Christians, Jesus says, look up, <laughs> raise your head up. This is not a bad thing that I'm coming back and you're seeing all these signs in the heavens and water foaming and all this stuff happening, things coming out of the sky. This is a good thing because it means your redemption is drawing nigh. The very thing you've waited for, the groaning and the longing to get away from sin fully and away from death and away from sickness and away from the messed up world we live in. Look up. Your redemption is very close. Jesus says. So it's a good thing. So we want to celebrate it with soberness, knowing that not everybody's going to be you know, celebrating in the way we will be. But Jesus says, look up. Your redemption is drawing near. I just thought it was a neat perspective on end time stuff because sometimes we just get so doomed and gloomed like, oh, this is such a bummer. Yeah, it's a big deal. But it's a big deal for us as Christians because our redemption will be made complete soon when Jesus returns. Look at verse 29. Yeah, now Jesus stole my opening illustration. And he told him a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you'll see for yourselves and know that the summer's already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. For those that are watching, the second coming of Jesus is not going to come as a surprise. Okay, For those that are alert and are ready, Jesus says, you know how to read the signs. Just like we read the signs on our acreage, I can tell you what's coming next. I can tell you in the next week or two, the goslings are going to be out on the beach. You know, the, the Canadian geese goslings and their little, your cute little yellowness are walking on the beach. And the eagles are going to go, snatch. I'm going to tell you all the stuff that's coming, okay? Because I've been there before and I know what it means. Jesus is saying those things that you know in the, in the natural realm, those are also going to be true in the spiritual realm for those that are watching. Because there are going to be signs that we're going to know. It's not going to come as a surprise. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God, when you see that stuff happening and all these things and some of the things in the book of Revelation, when you see that coming, the kingdom of God is near. Now that sounds kind of strange to us because we think, well, I thought the kingdom of God had already showed up. Isn't that what you were all about, Jesus? And yeah, he was about that. Jesus' first coming when he came as a man to earth, that was about establishing a spiritual kingdom. Okay, He established a kingdom in our hearts a God kingdom, a God community in the church, that's what Jesus was establishing. And again, it stressed a lot of people out because they said, yeah, we're all about kingdoms. Yeah, you throw the Romans out. Let's set up shop. Let's get a main office and print some letterhead, you know, and they were going to do all this stuff. Jesus says, no, you don't understand. This kind of kingdom I'm talking about is not that kind of kingdom. And yet they knew from the scripture from the Old Testament, wait a minute, you, you know, Messiah, that's the guy, right? So they misunderstood what kind of kingdom Jesus was first coming to establish. He came to establish a hidden kingdom. It's a kingdom that's in operation now. It's spreading. 
you saw the, spring, the kingdom spreading in three testimonies this morning, spreading in their lives and spreading into our community. It's a growing kingdom. But it's not a kingdom that has an address, you know, or doesn't have letterhead. It's not a physical kingdom. His, the time he came first was to establish a spiritual kingdom. But the second time he comes, then he's going to establish a physical kingdom. There is going to be leaders and he's going to be ruling and earth is going to know and he's going to be in large and in charge if you want to say that, okay? So the very thing that the people were expecting in his first coming is going to take place. They just didn't see this gap between his first and his second coming. That's the gap we're living in right now. He came one time, he's coming in, he's not back yet. There's a spiritual kingdom, but we haven't seen the literal kingdom yet. That's where the book of Revelation comes in. Obviously, no time for that. Don't get me started. Okay. But the thing that's important about this is, when we look at this, is that it's important to know that everything, everything we currently see and experience, everything around us right now is going to pass away. It's all going to burn. Things are going to look very different at the coming back of Jesus. And it's interesting if you ever talk to somebody who's been at death's door, it brings a very different perspective on earthly things. You talk to Deb Graves. She's been there, you know. I remember, Deb, when you finally came through all this mess, you were different. You're like, I don't care if the dishes aren't done. I don't care if you don't like me. You know, it's about Jesus and Jesus coming. I don't care if we don't have retirement. It's Jesus coming, right? So you've been there to the edge of death's door, and you know those things that you thought were so important, they have a whole different perspective. I've been there too. I, I know what you mean by that. You know what? This stuff is great, and I love using it and playing with it and being around it and hanging out and seeing it and insuring it and lubricating it and, you know, maintaining it. It's all cool, but it's all going to burn, and it's really not what's important. And Jesus is giving them that perspective in this. Um, the only things that we see that are going to remain after this all comes down is God's fulfilled promises and human souls. I mean, I'm sure the disciples were trying to figure all this out. Well, what about the kingdom? What about kingdom on earth? What about Romans out? What about glorified temple? What about, what about you know, righteous ruling and lambs and lions and all that stuff? And Jesus said, it's all going to be gone. All that remains is my, my word and my fulfilled word and human souls. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you're banking on anything else having any lasting value in the long run, bad bet. Because it's all going to go. Um, you know, what they say, no U-Haul behind a hearse. You know, and you can't take it with you, right? And, and when you get close, you see that perspective and it changes you. And I think he's trying to get his disciples ready for that as they looked at the temple and thought, wow, how wonderful is this? Only things that are going to remain are God's fulfilled promises in human souls. Okay, so this is all very interesting. What are they supposed to do? Look at verse 34. So here's the do part, or here's the part that's for the disciples. Because I'm sure they were like in overload, like, wow, this is a lot of information, Jesus. All this stuff coming, and you're telling about all the future and centuries ahead and second comings. And Wow, what am I supposed to do with all this? Well, Jesus says, 34. He says, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all the things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. That's his nickname for himself. Stand before me is what he's saying. So with all this prophetic information, what are they supposed to do? Well, there's a couple things Jesus lays out. And I'll just paraphrase it. Number one, I think, is, I think Jesus just says, travel light. 
<laughs> you know? It's interesting. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You know, when he was on earth, he, he, you know, 15 passenger van is all he needed, you know, to get around. The guys are with him, right? Travel light. Don't get too weighed down with the pleasures and the stuff of the world. Uh, he was speaking this because he knew what the disciples were going to have to live through. He knew what was coming for them, but also he looked ahead for all generations. He looked ahead and saw prosperous Canada in the 21st century. He saw our lives. He knew about COVID. He, he sees it all, right? He said, be careful. Don't get weighed down with the things and the stuff of life. And it talks about two extremes here. One is it talks about drunkenness. Don't be drunk. <laughs> I didn't know this word dissipation. I looked it up in the Greek, and I'm not joking. You people say, look it up in the Greek. It, it's hangover. It's the Greek word for hangover. <laughs> I love Jesus is so real. It's like, do not get stuck in a hangover here, okay, right? This is not what it is. Because when you think about drinking and drunkenness, it's really the goal is to say, let me just forget the future. I don't want to know what's coming. I don't, it's bad. It's, things are messed up. I don't want to deal with what's coming in the future. I'm just going to get drunk out of my mind and I'm not going to worry about it. So it's, it's a way of saying, who cares? That's one extreme. But Jesus also says, I don't want you to worry, which is the other extreme. I don't want you to obsess about the future. Oh, no, what's going to, oh, 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 all this. How are we going to pay? Oh, what's going to come? What's going to kids do? You know? Don't obsess about the future because if drunkenness says, who cares? Worry says, well, what if? You know, I'll just say it this way. People I love in my family sometimes go through phases where everything is bad, okay? And it doesn't matter what it is. It could be, you know, I, they could say, There's, this could happen. And so at the end of the whole litany of bad things that could happen this week, I say, oh, you forgot nuclear disaster. What if that happens? Oh, oh yeah, the nuclear, right? I didn't, I did not say it, okay? I'm just saying, all right? What if? And we can spend our time in our lives all worried about what if, what if, what if. And Jesus says, these are both extremes that I don't want you to do. I don't want you to say, forget it, flush it. And I don't want you to be so preoccupied with it that you miss the moment of what's taking place. Travel light and be ready and be aware. Second thing is he says, stay spiritually alert. Stay spiritually alert. Have you ever had times in your life when you were just felt like you were spiritually dull? I have had those times in my life. I just feel like I'm just kind of going through the motions. Maybe there's some sin that's crept into my life or something in my life, and I'm just, I haven't dealt with stuff. I'm not walking with what I know I need to be doing with Jesus. The relationship's grown cold. Jesus said, don't get in that place of spiritual dullness. Stay spiritually alert. Because it says our enemy, the devil, is setting traps all around us. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. We know that about the devil. And he set traps for us to get our eyes off of what's coming, off that spiritual alertness. So we're ready and aware for what's coming in this time that Jesus is describing. So stay spiritually alert. And the third thing he says is pray for strength. <laughs> this is so great. Just pray for strength. Pray for strength to endure and to get through these things that I'm describing. Not just talking about going to God with needs. Oh, God, I need this. We're $500 short on the rent. Uh, you know, all, uh, that's all good prayers. Those are okay. And Jesus loves to, God loves to hear those prayers. But it's also, I think, learning to listen to God in prayer, too. It's not just coming with all my stuff and going, okay, i got to go off to work. It's also learning to listen because I think in listening prayer, God speaks to us about things that are coming in our life, in our family's life, in our culture's life, in the future, in the church's life. Big things. For those that are listening. So for those that are ready and are paying attention, that second coming is not going to come as a surprise. And there are practical things I think he's saying to his disciples. And by that, us as well, to stay ready. So what's the take home for me? Well, 
as I've been thinking about this the last month or so, I've been asking myself, what is my temple? What's the thing that stands in my life that is just so huge and so amazing and so solid and so foundational and so central that I could never see it? You know, I just can't even imagine life without it. What's most precious in my life? I think is what Jesus is asking. What's the most valuable stuff in my life? Jesus had a lot to say about possessions. If you're not sure what's most valuable, what are you paying insurance on? That's your first clue, okay? The stuff you pay insurance on is the stuff that's valuable to you, right? What is that? What is the center of my life? What is it at the very core of who I am? What's the thing that I can't imagine living with if it was taken away? That's what I mean by the temple. What's that thing in our life like that? I think the thing that's so sobering about this passages, yeah, there's a lot of information about what's still to come, but I think it's very practical to say, be careful about that temple or those temples in your life, those things that you just can't even imagine being shaken, because I think Jesus is reminding us all, that's all going to pass away. Whatever that thing is, whatever that place is, whatever that event is, whatever that achievement is, be careful with this one, whatever that person is could even be the issue, Right? Jesus is saying, that's all going to pass away. And we've got to enjoy those things, use those things, use them for the kingdom, be grateful, receive them, you know, multiply them, do all that stuff we're supposed to do with the things God gives us. And yet we've got to have a recognition that it's all going to pass away. Everything that we think is so solid, if it's this kind of stuff, if it's not the promises of Jesus and human souls, it's all going to go. Now that's a pretty interesting perspective, at least for me, you know, in 2022, as I pay my bills and get up and go to work tomorrow morning and do the things I do. You know what? Great, thank you, Jesus, for all this stuff, but my perspective has to be on you. Lift your head high. <laughs> your redemption is drawing near. I don't know if it's our lifetime. I wish I could tell you it's 2029 or something. I, I don't know. Anybody who does is blowing smoke at you anyway because nobody knows, not even Jesus. But I think there's an expect expectancy that Jesus wants us to walk with. There's a, a, an open hand, there's a looseness that we hold this stuff around us with because we know the reality of what's coming. That makes us different. It makes us countercultural. It makes us stand out in the crowd um, because that's what Jesus wants us to be, a, per, a people that are watching. There's no time to slumber. It's an old word, but I've been thinking about it. I just feel like the Holy Spirit's been saying to me, this is no time to slumber right now, right in this season. Right, you know, April 10th. This is no time to slumber. Be aware and be watching and be listening and be tuned to what I want to do because there's more to come and I want to reveal it to those who are ready and who are watching. Can you stand with me? I just want to sing a little chorus as we close today. Some of you know it. Uh, it was written about 100 years ago. It's called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And the words are real simple. It says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Sing it with me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. Now think about your temple 
and sing it with me again. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look for wonder. And the other will grow strangely in the light of glory and grace. Thank you, Jesus, that you're coming again. Thank you that you've called us. Thank you that you let us be awake. You've called us to be awake. You've empowered us to awake. You're going to protect us through whatever comes. And Lord, we want to be the people that are ready, that are watching, and are changed even today because we know what's coming. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you.